After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like to be a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give him glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and, glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of God. It's a long passage, but it's an important one. And it's one I think that's important that you read uh, all together because it really paints this unbelievable picture. Now, I don't know if, as, as I was reading that, if maybe you were trying to imagine the creatures with eyes on their wings and, and everything that he was describing, uh, because it's a very visceral, uh, visceral picture. Today, what we're looking at is what John experiences here is a vision of heaven. We're going to be looking at this vision of heaven that John has given. Um, and what's interesting is, is it's oftentimes when you experience or, or read or, or watch a science fiction film, one of the coolest elements of, those, of some of those stories is those that have an, another dimension existing at the same time. So an example of this would be, if you're familiar with the TV show Stranger Things, okay, there's the Upside Down. Um, if that reference, you don't know that that show is, there's a, a movie called The Matrix. Maybe you've seen The Matrix where there is a world that exists, maybe that you can't see in your present reality, but it exists simultaneously nonetheless. Or maybe you've watched the Marvel movies and you've seen the multiverse and there's, there's, there's multiple different uh, things existing at the same time. I won't give away any spoilers. Um, there is a reality that we're seeing that is bigger than anything that we can actually under, fully understand. And what John is saying is that there is within this reality an ultimate reality, something that is bigger than what you can see, bigger than what you can understand, but nonetheless, it is existing. And if you were to see the things that I have seen, 
you can imagine how that would change your life. Imagine seeing what John saw. Imagine there being a door and you able to open that door and walk through and see what John had seen. I'm guessing that for many of us, it would absolutely turn our lives upside down. In this chapter, uh, John is given the opportunity to look into heaven, to come outside of this sort of back alley into this new universe that is so much, uh, it's so great and incredible that he has trouble describing it. And he begins, he says, I looked and behold, there was a door standing open in heaven. John is not here referring to a faraway place as if heaven is somewhere far, far away, right? Understand that he is on earth at this time. He's on the island of Patmos, which if you know anything about the island of Patmos, it was a, uh, a rocky island in the Mediterranean uh, where Romans would actually send prisoners and also people who have been exiled because of political treason. So this island was, was kind of like Alcatraz, right? It was off in his own little island. They would send people there and it was not a pleasant place to live. Remember John, he's 80 years old. Uh, he's been exiled there because he refused to worship Caesar and call him God. So he took a stand, refused to worship Caesar, is sent to this island basically to die. But God isn't finished with John. He gives him this incredible and amazing vision, not somewhere far away, but somewhere close at hand. What do I mean by that? Um, John Caird, or George Caird put it this way. He says, heaven is a part of the universe but a part which is entered by a spiritual eye rather than any external form of transit. What does he mean? What he means is that this is not a future reality, but this is, this is telling us that this was a present reality, that the moment when John saw this vision, that was not happening just in the future. That was happening right then, right now, in that moment. That while he was watching it take place, it existed. What does that mean for us? In verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, we see it's actually Jesus himself who invites him into this vision. It says he was caught up in the spirit. He was invited by Jesus himself. And what does he see? The first thing John sees, he says, behold a throne. Now this throne is, uh, to the best of what he can describe, one of the most beautiful things he's ever seen. And this throne represents sort of the supreme headquarters at the center of the universe, its ultimate reality. And ultimately what he sees here is a, a, not just a throne, but a ton of crazy stuff going on, all centered on worshiping the one who is sitting on the throne. Now, a little context here. Remember, we're in 95 AD. Okay, this is when the emperor Domitian was going around and killing Christians. Over 40,000 Christians at this point have been killed. Not only that, um, but Timothy, who we read about, who in the scriptures, was murdered at this point and beaten for his beliefs. Um, and behind this door, okay, is a throne. And guess who's not on the throne, right? It is not Domitian. So imagine being a Christian and seeing all this pain, all this suffering, all this horrible things happen. You could lose your house. You could have your friends sent to be killed by lions or, or burned at the stake. And you see a vision of what's really going on. When you pull back the curtain, and see ultimate reality. It is God himself who is sit sitting on the throne. I think this represents a reality for all of history, that there will always be ideologies that will come and go. Marxism, apartheid, Nazism, all these different ideologies that at one point will have prominence, but then will soon 
pass. Kings and leaders that have risen and fallen. Uh, some tyrannical leaders. You can, you can think back in history and look at Pharaoh. You look at General Mao. You can look at Adolf Hitler, Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan. Go on and on and on about leaders who had power and used that power to hurt and, and oppress people. But tyrannical leaders, though in their time on earth, were feared by man. Even while they were in power, there was an ultimate reality behind the curtain of one who is seated on the ultimate throne. And little did a lot of people know, but during all of history, this worship, this perpetual worship that's happening in heaven was always happening and still is today. I read a story about uh, the funeral of Louis XIV. He was a king of France, and the priest who conducted the service, uh, looked down at the body of this once powerful monarch. And as he looked down at the body, he was dressed up in, in, in all these fancy robes and had this, this luxurious jewelry. And it was just, you could tell, there was so much detail put into what he was laying in his final coffin. The priest looked at him, looked at the assembled nobility, all who came to the funeral, and said, My friends, only God is great. Now, of course, throughout history, we see kings who rise and fall. But in the midst of all that, there is this ultimate reality. And what John sees isn't everything, okay? He just gets a glimpse. Remember, this is a moment when he is caught up in the spirit. He gets a vision of heaven. He gets maybe a fraction of the entirety of what he could see. And not only that, but it was so overwhelming for him. And that's part of why, like, you got to remember, we're reading apocalyptic literature at this point. So in the first part of uh, Revelation, we read the letters that he wrote to the churches. And that was a different sort of genre of literature. We're now moving into what we'll call apocalyptic literature, which is meant to be read not so much in a literal sense, but in sort of trying to put words to something that one cannot fully understand. It would be like, I try to think of an illustration, it'd be like, um, if we were to end up going to heaven and there was a whole new color spectrum and you were sent back to earth and you had to describe what these new colors looked like, it would be impossible. If it was a brand new color, there'd be no way to put words to it. It was probably far more than he could ever truly articulate. But what he is shown and what is important is that this is the essence, that the center of the universe, the essence is that all will worship the throne. Now, there's been a number of phys physicists who've debated uh, recently in the last 10 years about what's actually going on, uh, that, that what's the thing, the one thing that holds everything in the world together. What is ultimate meaning? What is the essence of life? Where is history going? And in this moment, John is giving a glimpse of what that meaning is, and that's worship. So what is it that John saw? Let's take a look, and we'll see. I think we'll see a couple things. One, we'll see the need for worship, which we'll talk about a bit, and then we'll also see the way of worship that we're going to practice and continue to practice. So the first thing that we see is that everything uh, is worshiping in this moment. Remember, we read Revelation. Uh, as we read this, we want to focus uh, on the forest uh, over the instead of the trees, because if you look at the trees, you'll get lost, okay? So we want to look at the big picture. Um, apocalyptic literature typically wants to focus on the who and the why as opposed to the how and the when, 
Okay, I think, I think oftentimes we're more attracted to wanting to know, well, are we in the end times? Is this historical event uh, predicted in the scriptures? When will Jesus return? We want to know how things are going to happen and when they're going to happen. But the reality is that's not what John's interested in. I, I think it's pretty clear as you read and, and, and study um, that John is actually more concerned about who is um, who it's about and why he's doing what he's doing. So keeping that in mind, there is a little bit of room to maybe speculate a bit. We have, what, 24 elders, 24 smaller thrones. Who might this be? This has been debated uh, quite a bit, um, but I think the most compelling case is that the 24 elders, 12 of them are the tribes of Israel, and 12 of them are the apostles. Why? Perhaps there is a to sort of describe this continuity between the Old and the New Testament that God has been with his people since the beginning and that the redemptive plan was always the plan. So you have 12 tribes of Israel, you have 12 apostles, and perhaps that's who the 24 elders represents. That's probably what it means, but we aren't entirely sure. There are four living creatures. What I probably think that means, um, it's probably to show all of creation was worshiping God. You have the ox, which is a domesticated animal. You have a lion, which is a wild animal. You have a third creature that had a face like a man, perhaps describing me in kind, although I kind of always imagine it's like a centaur, you know, like a body of a horse, but a man with a lot of eyes and wings. Um, and then you have flying animals, okay? So you have, you have, you have the birds, right? You, have, you basically have a, a, the full gamut of creation. All, everything is worshiping God in perpetual worship in this moment. All things worship God to glorify God, to ascribe worth. It's the universal design of everything to worship. In Psalm 19, uh, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They have no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. What does this mean? The psalmist is trying to express sort of in a, in a poetic way that all of creation, not just animals and humans, but all of creation, including mountains and canyons and stars and moons and you name it, all of it is in, this, in essence worshiping God. He says, he personifies as their voice goes to all of the earth. Why are these things so beautiful? Why is it that you can be at a mountain and look out and it can just take your breath away? Have you ever, have you ever worshipped just by looking out in God's creation? I know I've sensed that. That's probably one of the ways I connect most closely with God is through being in nature. And I think part of the reason why we can say, yes, these things worship is because they are being exactly what they were created to be. God created the mountain to be a mountain. He created the ocean to be an ocean. This is who God created them to be. And therefore, they're bringing glory to God. They are worshiping. But the psalmist speaks differently about man. Sometimes, while we are created to be this beautiful thing, we don't always look as beautiful as we should. Why did the psalmist say that? I think it's because oftentimes humans aren't always doing what we were made to do, what we were created to do. 
We are not worshiping as we should. And so the implications for this are that you and I are designed for worship. Uh, everyone will worship something. Everybody must worship something. This is just part of it. If, it. if we are going to be what it means to be human is that we will ascribe worth to things. And that can look a lot of different ways. Let me give an example. We all worship something. Let's take the football fan, for example. The football fan will study uh, their, the football team or, or what, what's going to happen that week or look at uh, last week's game. They will adjust their fantasy football lineup. They'll listen to sports radio and podcasts. They'll watch ESPN. Uh, they'll check the Minnesota Vikings subreddit. Maybe I'm speaking to myself. Um, and then when Sunday comes, right, they get in the presence of the object of their adoration. And maybe they gather in a community surrounding a pickup truck, right, where they eat hot dogs and beer. It's kind of a substitute for the bread and the wine, right? There's kind of a congregation that meets, and they gather around to sort of commune together in this holy religion of football. And then what happens? The game begins. Their posture changes. They are standing. Their hands are raised. They are yelling praises and sometimes curses, right? As they watch this football game, I'm not anti-football. I love football. I'll be cheering for the Chiefs this weekend. But I want to point out how these things can very easily slip into objects of our worship. And they can actually become idols in our life. Another thing that can become an, an idol is our attitudes towards sex. Malcolm Muggridge calls sex the mysticism of the materialist. What he meant by that was some of us are more refined or some of us are maybe more uh, crassly addicted or, or perverse, but ultimately the reality is we are unbelievably obsessed by the sight of a sexually attractive object. And many of us, I think, in our culture, we're inundated by it so much through the media, through social media, through um, television and movies and everything that's around us. I think if most of us are honest, many would not want others to know how much this can weigh on your heart. We wouldn't want people to know how many of us use sex as a coping mechanism, whether it's through pornography or other means, where sex, in a sense, becomes this, this idolatrous thing of our worship. See, the reality is we were created as sexual beings. That is a good thing. But it can become a bad thing when it becomes object of our worship. You know, the history of king and queens uh, is really a terrible history of tyranny and slavery. If you look back throughout history, uh, in countries who still have king and queens, they still obsess over uh, every detail of their life, what they wear, um, what their secrets are, what they're going to name their babies, and on and on. They have TV shows dedicated to uh, their lives and all of this. But countries that don't have kings or queens, take our country, for example, we create sort of our own uh, objects of worship, whether it's athletes, whether it's um, social influencers, whether it's um, those who are wealthy or those who uh, are great actors and actresses. We create these larger-than-life celebrities, and they become objects of worship. Why do we do this? I think it's because deep inside of all of us, there is a need to worship. We bow down to beautiful bodies, to wonderful music and art, to sports teams, because our spiritual natures, whether we want to or not, are going to be fed. If you deny foods, if you deny them foods, they will eat poison. But hear me, they will still eat. It's like 
You're playing in the mud with your little toys, sex, money, fame, and security, when there is an infinite joy that is offered to you. But instead, you're content to simply play in the mud. Surrender to something bigger than yourself, I believe is the idea that John is trying to communicate with his message. And you know, God throughout the scriptures is continually saying, praise me, which is kind of a weird thing. Um, when you th- if you think about it literally, like I, I think about sometimes um, I'll, come, I'll, I'll be home and I'll do something to surprise my wife. I'll clean the kitchen, I'll fold the laundry, stuff that normally she would do. And then when she comes in, I'll be like, hey, hey, baby, see what I did? Clean the kitchen. It's pretty good, right? I'll like ask for praise. Um, and uh, I need that. I want that. I crave that. I want, I want her to praise me when I do good things. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not God up in heaven being like, I need your praise for everything I do. It's actually the fact he doesn't even need your praise. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need it, but he does understand that all of us need to praise something. There is something deep within us that he has created us to be people who ascribe worth and worship. Everything must worship. C.S. Lewis says it like this, and he's talking about the doctrine of heaven here. He says, to see what the doctrine really means, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, with God. Drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that delight which, far from remaining pent up within ourselves as incommunicable, hence hardly tolerable, bliss flows out of us incessantly, again in effortless and perfect expression. Our joy is no more separable from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself and the brightness a mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. The Scotch Catechism says the man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Part of our call and our our inmost longing for worship is the fact that God himself wants us to enjoy him by being the people whom we were truly created to be. That's why we need worship. The reason we need it is because we were created for it, but it is so easy to fill that with a cheap substitute. So how do we, how do we worship? Um, in the passage, you have uh, a praise, thanksgiving. You even have confession when John weeps because he's unworthy to open the scroll. You also have the means. What do they do? They bow down and they play harps. Okay? Music is both... Uh, analytical and emotional, right? You've got rhythm and tempo and notes and skills that you learn over time. There's an analytical piece of music, but it's also emotional. It, it brings emotion out of us. It's something that causes us to feel things, whether it's happy emotions or sad emotions. We also see the bowls and the vials and the prayers of the saints. We get a mini sermon, right? An, an exposition of truth. He says, he is worthy to receive glory and honor for you have created all things. And then we'll read next week in chapter 5, he says the same thing, but he says, for you were the one who was slain. You see, worship ignites out of the church. It explodes out of the church. It is a necessary part of what it means to be the church. I love what Tim Keller says. He writes, worship is logic on fire. And so what do you have? 
You have an exposition of truth. You have thanksgiving. You have praise, confession, prayers, responsive readings, all stuff that we do every Thursday night. We see this at the ultimate reality. When you pull back the curtain and you see a glimpse of heaven, you see this beautiful liturgy. At the heart of this expression, there is a word that we see over and over again. That's the word worthy. Worthy is a, an old English word. It comes from the word um, worth-ship. So that's where we get worship. Um, it's, it's this idea of ascribing worth. And there's a tiny parable in Matthew 13 that I think really illustrates this idea. <clears throat> Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into a lake and caught all kinds of fish. Imagine, for me, to sort of make this a a more modern illustration, because I think Jesus' point can be confusing if you don't read it correctly. Uh, uh, One of the things that my my wife and I love to do is look at houses on realtor.com or zillow.com and send us houses because, you know, buying houses is kind of exciting. And we're, we're, our family's growing. We're looking at possibly eventually getting a new house. Problem is, I love to send her like houses that are worth like $1.8 million and way out of our price range, but I'm all about the man cave. I'm trying to get this giant basement. I want a golf simulator. I've got all kinds of dreams. Anyway, um, she usually says no and dismisses my ideas. But imagine, okay, you're on realtor.com. You find this house. It's modest. Um, you know, it's right within your budget. And you go to see this house. They give you a key to go check it out. You go inside, and inside the house, you find a secret door. And in that door is this beautiful, amazing, incredible treasure that you know is worth far more than the house is worth. It's worth millions and millions and will absolutely turn your life upside down. So you decide you're going to buy this house. And in order to buy it, it's just out of your price range. You actually go and sell all of your possessions because this house has a treasure that is far greater than anything you could already ever own. It's not a perfect metaphor. But the idea that the finding that treasure is something that absolutely, trans, uh, to absolutely uh, changes the way you see everything is kind of what Jesus is getting at. That it turns your life upside down, that you see this thing and it changes the way you live so much that you're willing to sell everything for it. That's what worship is doing in this moment for John. As he looks in this door, as he sees a glimpse of heaven, to have that picture It is so life-changing that it changes all of the priorities. It flips everything on its head because this is greater than anything else he could ever imagine. And so what do we do? What do we see? What happens? It says in the heavenly worship, they sing holy, 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 just as we did not too long before. And what do they do? They cast their crowns before him. What does it mean to cast your crown before? before him. It means that when you've worshiped, you've given up everything. You relinquish control of your life. And so let me ask you this. As a moment of, refle- a moment of reflection, um, 
Is there a crown in your life that you need to lay at the feet of God? Is there a thing that if you could have it, it would make, it would bring you the ultimate joy? This, if I could just have this, my life would be complete. Or if there was a thing, if you lost it, would make life not worth living. Perhaps this crown is, is the crown of approval. Perhaps it's the crown of romantic completion. If I could just find the one and get married, that would be it. I would have the ultimate joy. Or maybe it's the crown of financial security. If I could have just this much in the bank account, or if I could win the lottery or whatever, I would be complete. Some worship the crown of opin- the opinion that others have of them. Some, it's, it's the crown of pleasure and excess and power. Some worship the crown of the Vikings finally winning the Super Bowl. What crowns do you need to lay down at the feet of God? And I think the way that we know that we are worshiping God, we are truly worshiping God, is that God becomes preeminent in your life. What would happen if God was the most important thing in your life? And as, as Western thinkers, we often like to be pragmatic and have lists that God is a top. It's like God, family, football, right? Like that's a, we have these lists of what's most important. But the problem with that is so often those priorities get mixed up, right? We, do it, we say that God's the most important, but that oftentimes isn't how we live. And I think a better way to think about it is think about God in the center of our life. Because God affects every single aspect of your life. It affects the way you treat your family. It affects the way you raise your kids. It affects the way you speak to people, the way you view your wealth, the way you conduct your career, your, your relationships. It affects the way you use your speech, the way you form opinions. And you will have this radical reorientation on the way you see and view everything. Now look, we are broken uh, Sinful, messed up people. But the good news is this. God's grace is an ocean. It's infinite. There's no end to it. And it is out of the gratitude and affection and worship that God can create in us what we call a holy discontentment. Right? This idea that God in himself is inexhaustible. There's no end to his being. It's the great quote by St. Augustine that says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That we were created as beings, as beings who were created to worship. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, the Spirit begins creating in us this holy discontentment, where we are discontent until we get more of him, and when we are discontent, discontent until we get more of him. What that does is conversely, it means we, are, we become discontent with our sin. We can no longer tolerate sin in our life because the Spirit is at work, and in that, we desire to be more like Christ. And I'll say this, for all of you here tonight and those watching on the live stream, whatever your vocation is, whether you're an accountant or um, uh, a welder, I'm trying to think of jobs, policeman, professional football player, those are part of your identity, but what you are at, at the ultimate sense is that you are a son and daughter of the God who is on this throne. 
You were created for this liminal space. The word liminal means it's the threshold between heaven and earth. It's the converging of heaven and earth coming together that when we worship the king, we are getting a taste of that convergent space. And I think because of that, we need to reckon with Jesus a little bit here. This isn't sweet baby Jesus on a cloud with a harp, right? This isn't, uh, this is the image that we get here is something much, much different. The image we get is King Jesus, the words is sovereign over all. It says, to the one who has conquered, which remember when this was written, they were having their stuff stolen. People were being fed to lions. They were being burned at the stake. And yet Jesus says, I know what's going on. I see it. But what is the ultimate reality? I have conquered. You'll see in a few weeks, it's kind of cool, but some of those who were fed to lions and burned alive will ask questions in heaven to Jesus and ask the question, how long? How long until you bring justice? How long till you avenge our, 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 our death? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll save that for a few weeks. This is a reckoning with king of universe. This throne that is now surrounded by elders and thrones and creatures, they have all bowed to it and said, amen, which means so be it. The truth is this, you cannot say so be it if you are on your own throne. And I'll say this, I'll be just real straight with you tonight. That path will only lead to heartbreak. There is nothing but heart, heartbreak and disappointment and placebos in a life of swinging back and forth and freaking out and then trying to numb that with whatever your coping mechanism might be, whatever your compulsion might be, whether it's drugs, alcohol, maybe it's inappropriate relationships or sexual morality or power, whatever the thing is that you use to cope with this reality of brokenness and sin, that life leads to heartbreak and destruction. So much so the Apostle Paul says the wages of sin are death. I don't know what your compulsion, your struggle, your vice might be. But here's my encouragement. We serve a God whose grace is like an ocean. There's no end to it. His mercies are new every morning. We serve a God who has forgiven us and will offer forgiveness for all of our sin. But the only way I think we will truly, truly tap into that life-changing worship is if we look through the curtain, we see the throne, and we go to that throne on our knees, laying down our idols, laying down our crowns to the one true king. God has revealed our need to worship. And we're going to close uh, by way of worship. And we're going to sing one more song. And uh, as we do, I want to encourage you, I want to close in a, in a word of prayer. And as I pray, I want to encourage you just to hold your hands out as a as a, a posture of saying, God, I surrender my crowns. And uh, I'll pray for us, invite the band to come on up, and we'll close in worship together. Father, we come to you with a position of surrender. Come to you in a position of saying, there are things in our life that get in the way of our worship of you. There are times when we want to control things. We want to sit in our own throne. Father, I pray that there would be a relinquishing of control. I pray there, there would be a laying down of the things that we oftentimes put in front of you, the ways in which we um, 
we know how we should live, but we choose to live in a different way. Lord, I pray for freedom for those stuck in addiction, for those stuck in cycles of shame. Lord, I pray for freedom from all of that, that there would be healing. Father, as we sing, as we worship, may we be reminded that we are joining the heavenly chorus that right now, at this very moment, is worshiping you. It sings, holy, holy, holy. Lord, we join in this together. We surrender to you. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.